Well, uh, as Lori said, I'm Jeff Mills. Uh, for those of you whom I have not met, uh, I'll welcome the chance to meet you later today. And uh, I'm super, super excited to talk about worship today. It's my favorite um, topic, which is a good thing, because every week we worship together in song. Uh, and if you were here last week, uh, you recall that we had the privilege of baptizing 10 people. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was an amazing experience. If you didn't have the chance to be with us, uh, you can probably look on, the, I think it's on the city where the photos are, are captured there. Uh, but it was an amazing uh, time where people were publicly declaring their inner commitment to follow Jesus and also be part of our church family in a way that was just profound and powerful and moving. And so even those who weren't here said online looking at the photos of people crying and people experiencing God was just even powerful uh, moments for them. So this week we want to take a look at uh, worship, and we see that as actually an extension of where we were last week, just like baptism is an outward expression of surrender to God. Worship is also an outward expression of inner surrender and sacrifice to God. And so we see this as a continuation of our journey. So the title on the message you'll see is, What is Worship? A Biblical Foundation. So what we want to do is take a look at the sweep of scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. What does the Bible say about how the people of God worship him? And we want that to be our foundation. Speaking of uh, outward expressions of surrender reminds me of a story I ran across this week. A woman invited several guests over for dinner with her family one evening. After everyone was seated at the table, she turned to her six-year-old daughter and asked her if she would like to say the blessing before they began the meal. The little girl said, well, I don't know what I would say. And so the mother said, well, just say what you hear mommy say. <laughs> so you know where this is going. And so the little girl thought about that for a minute. She said, okay, I can do that. So she obediently bowed her head and began to pray for their meal together. And she prayed this prayer. Dear Lord, why on earth did I invite all these people to dinner? <laughs> and so you might say that some thoughts and ideas and opinions might be left best unexpressed and leave it to children to find the exact precise moment at which to share the undisclosable items of our lives. But it's a good thing that worship... And worshiping God is not like that. God doesn't receive our expressions outwardly to him as this mother might have, cringing like, oh, I wish you hadn't done that. He actually welcomes us to give everything we have to him. He made us, and he invites us to worship him with everything we have. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for who you are and what you've done in our lives. Thank you for being uh, our God, so worthy of our worship, giving everything we have to you. And we ask you by your Holy Spirit to come this morning and show us what it means to experience you through worship, through outward expressions of our surrender to you and our whole lives given to you in your name. Amen. So it should come as no surprise that since everything begins in Genesis, worship also begins in Genesis. And I'm not going to ask you to turn to every passage that we look at because as you'll see in my Bible, that would be about 17 different ones. 
So I don't want you to like rip pages out of your Bible trying to stay with me. So I'll specifically highlight the ones where I think it might be worth all of us turning to. Uh, But it does begin in Genesis, and we see that uh, the first thing I want to point out is that in uh, chapter 4, verse uh, 26, it says that in this time, people first began to worship the Lord by name. And I think by name is significant. We use people's first names, or we say phrases like, we're on a first name basis, because we have some relationship, we have a connection with them in some way. There's a big difference between, hey, you, you know, if we're trying to get someone's attention and we don't know their name, and, you know, hey, Jim, or hey, Sue. When we use people's names, we're connecting with them in a relational way. And so it was in this time, the very, very beginning, when people were worshiping God by name, a very direct and personal conversation. Not very far away from that point in Genesis, we're introduced to a man by the name of Abraham. And it is to Abraham that God promises he would make Abraham into a great nation and that he, God would bless all other nations through this great nation that, uh, that he was making Abraham's family into. And specifically, it was through Abraham's son Isaac that all of these promises were to come true. But in a series of turn of events in chapter 22 of Genesis, we read about how Abraham is tested. God's asking Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. So he's, he's being asked to sacrifice the son through whom all of these promises were to be coming true. And so God shows Abraham where this sacrifice is to take place. And we see in uh, chapter 22, verse 5, that Abraham's pointing to this place and he tells his servants, stay here. Uh, the boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there and then we will come right back. So he's pointing to the place where he knows he's going to sacrifice his son. And he's saying, we're going to go worship there. And so there's something specifically connected between worship and sacrifice. There's a direct link between these two things. Worship you might say, requires sacrifice. It it costs something. When we surrender our will or when we sacrifice something that we have, we give it over, it costs us something. And so for Abraham, worshiping God was costing him his own son. But God stops him at the very last second, right before his stroke fell. And we're paused right in that moment. And it's in that moment where Abraham's obedience, taken all the way through in an outward expression, an outward action, it's in that moment where God receives Abraham's heart. He received, And that's what he wanted. He wanted to know that Abraham wasn't going to withhold anything from him, even his own son. Now, what Abraham couldn't have known in that moment is that God, later through Jesus, does the exact same thing for us. He doesn't hold back even his own son. So time passes. God makes good on his promise. Abraham's family does become the nation of Israel, but soon the Israelites fall into slavery at the hands of Egypt. And in the book of Exodus, God initiates an all-out war, an all-out spiritual battle against Egypt and against the gods of Egypt to rescue his people from this slavery. And in Exodus chapter 7, verse 16, 
God commands uh, his servant leader Moses to say this to Pharaoh. God says to uh, Moses, say to Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say, let my people go so they can worship me in the wilderness. Until now, you have refused to listen to him. So let my people go so that they can worship me in the wilderness. But we all know the story. Pharaoh refuses. And it's not until he gets pummeled with a series of 10 increasingly severe plagues over time that he begins to relent. First, he says, okay, fine, you can go, but only the men can go. But that's not good enough. That's not what God asked for. He asked for all the people, all their belongings, all their flocks and herds to go and worship him. And so more plagues come. And then finally, Pharaoh says, okay, fine, you, you can go and all the people can go, but not the flocks. The flocks have to stay here. He's got to have some way to keep them coming back. It's free, it's free labor for him, and he can't just let that go easily. But again, that's not what God asked for. So more plagues come. And finally, the war, this spiritual war, claims the life of Pharaoh's firstborn son. And it's in that moment in chapter three, or chapter 12, verse 31 of the story that we read, Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron during the night. Leave us, he cried. Go away, all of you. Go and serve the Lord as you have requested. So God succeeds in delivering his people out of the hands of Egypt. And in doing this, we see a picture of not only what's happening in Egypt, but we also see a picture of what God's doing in our lives. Just like what was true in the time of Pharaoh is still true today. Pharaoh did not want his people to go. The spiritual forces and spiritual powers of that um, time did not want to let the people of God worship him with everything they had. And the same is true for us today. The spiritual rulers and forces of this present age that we live in do not want us giving our hearts and minds fully to God. But just like God rescued Egypt rescued Egypt from uh, rescued Israel from Egypt to fully worship him with everything they have. He rescues us today to worship him with everything that we have. And so these lowercase gods, these small G gods, these false gods that are really no gods at all for us, it might be money or sex or career or beauty or fitness, anything that tugs away at our hearts and divides our attentions away from fully devoting ourselves to the Lord. These are the lowercase gods that he rescues us from, just like he rescued Israel from in the days that we see here in Exodus. So after he frees his people from slavery to Egypt and bondage to the gods that Egypt served, he warns his people again and again. God warns his people through the books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and the rest of the books of the law, not to worship the gods of other nations. He just freed them. He doesn't want to go back into this slavery and bondage to these other false gods or man-made gods or images. And so while leading them into this good land that he had prepared for them, God told the people through Moses in Deuteronomy 7.16, he says, You must destroy all the nations the Lord your God hands over to you. Show them no mercy and do not worship their gods, for they will trap you. So God gives very specific instructions about how his people is are to worship him. And in fact, 
just a, a little bit later in Deuteronomy 12:11, God tells his people, you must bring everything I commanded you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your sacred offerings, and your offerings to fulfill a vow. All of these things, bring them all to the designated place of worship, the place the Lord your God chooses for his name to be honored. And so it was in this passage that the tabernacle was born, this mobile uh, tent, this place of worshiping God that went with the people everywhere that they went. They would re-put re up this tent, this tabernacle, and God dwelled there and he met his people there. And they experienced him in the tabernacle. Noted Bible scholar N.T. Wright describes the tabernacle and later the temple as the place where heaven and earth meet. It's this place where there's an intersection between God and his people, where they connect. And so it was in the tabernacle that this connection was happening, this worship experience was happening. It was to the tabernacle that God's people brought all of their outward expressions of surrender and sacrifice, tokens of their whole lives given to God. The story continues. The golden age of Israel dawned when David, son of Jesse, took the throne. And God said of David, He's, here's a man who's after my own heart. He was a worshiper of God. Of the 150 Psalms that we see in the Bible, David wrote over half of them. And these are passionate love songs to God, expressing everything from anger to peace, from resentment to contentment, from frustration to a sense of, of um, that everything's going to be okay. He just lays it all out. The full range of human emotions are expressed in these psalms, these songs to God. When I was uh, on a business trip to Denmark several years ago, we were right at the very tail end of a very significant project I had been spending three, four years of my life working on. And we were at the moment of going to production with these brand new machines that customers were eagerly expecting. We had tested them with them, and they were saying, this is great, when do we get ours? I couldn't wait to take that first order. And right at the brink of going to production with these brand new machines, uh, we had a significant show-stopping issue that would prevent us from shipping anything. So that day, I called Amy, I uh, got on a plane, went to Denmark, worked with the supplier, uh, thought it was going to be one of these problems we could get to the bottom of fairly quickly. It turns out that wasn't the case. I kept delaying my return flights. Uh, we were coming right up on Caden's first birthday, which was Saturday, and it was Tuesday, and then Wednesday, and then, you know, Thursday, and we're getting closer, and it's looking like I'm going to be stuck in Denmark for, you know, our second-born's very first birthday party. And so that night in the hotel room, I just remember getting very discouraged. This problem is making my team look bad. It's making our project look bad. I'm personally out because I'm going to miss my son's first birthday. Amy's going to read me the riot act when I get home. No, not really. Um, and so that night in the hotel room, I just remember flipping open somehow, and I think it was providential, I flipped over, flipped open Psalm, the book of Psalms, and I think, I believe it was Psalm 28, and I started reading out loud in my hotel room. And you know how <laughs> there are all kinds of reasons that try to, in your mind, you think of to convince yourself that it's okay not to take that next step or to put yourself out there or to begin reading psalms out loud or begin singing a song that you've never heard before that just kind of comes from your heart. There are all kinds of reasons why we talk ourselves into that it's okay 
to just stay in ourselves. That's why I think it's significant the worship is an outward expression. It comes from our mouths. It comes from our hands. It comes from an outward expression to God. And so in this hotel room, I started reading Psalm 28 and, and very timidly, you know, oh, Lord. You know, I didn't want anybody to hear me in the next room. You are my rock of safety. Please help me. Don't refuse me. But by the time I get to verse 7, I'm starting with more confidence now. The Lord is my strength, my shield from every danger. I trust him with my whole heart. He helps me and my heart is filled with joy. I burst out in song of thanksgiving and I started singing these weird songs I had never heard before. And just singing, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know if you've seen um, the movie Elf. (laughs) And where he's like, I'm singing and I love you. I love you. I love you. And you kind of say, oh, that's unfortunate. (laughs) But remember, God's not the woman at the table who invited her friends over and her daughter prays that really awkward prayer expressing something she had heard her mom say in the kitchen. God loves that silly kind of song. He loves that outpouring of our hearts to him. He wants our hearts. That's what he wants. And so in the darkness of this hotel room, God lifts me out of my deep discouragement. Within a few days, the production problem, we started to figure out what was going on. We put an interim corrective action in place, which is just a long way of saying we put a Band-Aid on it till we could get to it later. And uh, I got home in time for Caden's birthday that Saturday. So Psalms are very powerful worship songs, especially when we read them out loud, when we sing them out loud, when we express them outwardly. They're very powerful. But it's not David who will uh, transform this place of worship, the tabernacle, into a beautiful and permanent structure later to be known as the temple. It's actually Solomon who does this. In the uh, passing of the torch from father to son, David says this in 1 Chronicles 28. Verse 9, and this is one where I think it would be good if you have your Bible or Bible app, if we turn to this one together. First Chronicles 28, verse 9. And these are David's words to his son Solomon, a point where David's life is now setting. The son of his life is setting and, and the son of Solomon's life is rising. And Solomon, my son, get to know the God of your ancestors. Worship and serve him with your whole heart. And with a willing mind. For the Lord sees every heart and understands and knows every plan and thought. If you seek him, you will find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. And so it's, it's in this moment that uh, Solomon receives the instructions, the designs that David handed to him. The, the, of the, the architecture and the building of the temple. Solomon executes those instructions exactly. The temple is built. And in the temple, the temple is now the new tabernacle, the place where heaven and earth meet, where God's people experience him powerfully. And as they worship God in the temple, they experience shalom, which is this all-encompassing peace and fulfillment and comprehensive uh, completeness in their lives. But unfortunately, it doesn't last. Solomon had many wives, and it was said of these wives in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4, in Solomon's old age, 
They turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord his God as his father David had been. So this is a turning point that begins a downward spiral of lesser kings and lesser gods. But God sends his prophets again and again to warn his people to call them back. Worship me. Don't worship these man-made images. Don't worship the gods of these other nations. They're not real. I'm the real one. Worship me. And Isaiah is a, is a brilliant example of seeing a day when these false gods, these lowercase, small g gods would fade to the background and God, the true God, would be the only one that all nations and all peoples will one day worship. And in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, Isaiah says this in this picture of the future. In the last days, the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem will become the most important place on earth. People from all over the world will go there to worship. And uh, another picture that he sees is in, uh, just to highlight two of them here, chapter 17, uh, verse 8. Isaiah chapter 17, verse 8, Isaiah sees a picture where they will no longer ask their gods. The people of God will no longer ask their idols for help or worship what their own hands have made. They will never again bow down to their Asherah poles or burn incense on the altars they built. And so Isaiah sees this future where Everything false fades away and the one true God is the only one left standing and the people of God are worshiping him alone. And this is happening in the midst of a very dark time where the opposite is happening all around him. So in these prophecies, there is hope that a day is coming when the darkness of that day would break and the dawn of a new day where God alone would be worshiped would come. And then there's silence for hundreds of years waiting for this promise to come true, waiting for the hope to be fulfilled. And God comes in and breaks into human history in the man Jesus, who is the Messiah that was promised. And immediately the focus of worship changes. Matthew is the first to get in on the scene. He's reporting what King Herod requested of the men who had traveled a great distance to see Jesus. And in chapter 2, verse 8 of Matthew's account, King Herod tells these men who had come from a long way away, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. Now we know that Herod's motives are sneaky. He's actually wanting to wipe out any threat to his throne. But it's clear that Jesus is the new focal point of worship. He emerges as the one who's going to overturn the practices of the temple and turn hearts and attentions and affections towards himself. But no sooner does Jesus begin his ministry than he's led by the spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And so just two, just two chapters away in Matthew chapter four, verse nine. And this is another one where you're following along in your Bible. This is a good one because we've got two different looks at this in verse nine. We see that it's the last of the temptations that are recorded. There were three main points of uh, temptation that, that Satan throws Jesus way. And in this last one, Satan uh, takes Jesus to a place where somehow he could see all the vastness of the kingdoms of the earth and the glories of the earth. And he says to Jesus, I will give it all to you 
if you will only kneel down and worship me. So the battle for human hearts that was raging in the Exodus is still raging in the time of Jesus. And the central question has always been and will always be, to whom will we give our hearts? To whom will we give our lives? But Jesus knows that all the kingdoms of the earth combined pale in comparison to the glory of the kingdom of his father. And so he dishes it right back out to Satan in the very next verse. Verse 10, get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And of course, Jesus is quoting uh, Deuteronomy in the books of the law where God through Moses is commanding the people, worship me only. Don't be tempted. Don't be divided hearts with these other things that tug at you. Bring your affections to me. I'm the one. And because Jesus makes this stand right here, he makes it possible for us to make the same commitment. He breaks the pattern of idolatry. He breaks the pattern of worshiping these lowercase gods so that we can actually make a stand and do the same thing, worship God only, and resist the temptation to be divided, to to have our hearts tugged in all these other directions. The writer of Hebrews gives us this encouragement along these, these lines. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. The writer of Hebrews says this, This high priest of ours, Jesus, understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same temptations we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it. And so Jesus paves the way. He changes everything. The focal point of worship is now Jesus. And because he makes that claim, because he makes that stand, because he resists the temptation to worship uh, Satan in that moment, we now, under Jesus and under the commitment that he made, we now have power through the Holy Spirit to do the very same, to worship God alone. The story continues, and in chapter 4 of his account, the Apostle Apostle John captures a very perplexing story between Jesus and a Samaritan woman at the well. And the woman is caught in this very awkward moment where Jesus has this significant insight into her personal affairs. And she shifts the topic away from that awkwardness to starting to talk about the significance of worship through the lens of cultural and geographic differences. She says, well, you Jews worship God in Jerusalem. We Samaritans worship God over here. And so she's painting this contrast. But in very typical form, Jesus takes her frame and pivots it 90 degrees or maybe 180 degrees. And in John 4, 21 And 23. So this is a good one. If you want to turn with me to John chapter 4, 21 and 23. Jesus turns her perspective upside down on what worship is and why it's important. So John chapter 4, verse 21. Jesus replied to the woman, believe me, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the father here or in Jerusalem. And then skip to 23. But the time is coming when it and is already here when true worshipers will worship the father in spirit 
and in truth. The Father is looking for anyone who will worship him that way. And so Jesus is saying it doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter which geography you attribute your, your upbringing to. It doesn't matter your ethnicity or your socioeconomic upbringing. What matters is that God's looking for people who will worship him truly and from their hearts. So Jesus dismantles the idea that it's about where you're from or the geography that you're tied to. And he says, the father is now looking for those who will worship him truly from their hearts, their whole lives, where nothing's off the table. Then we reach the moment of Jesus' ultimate act of worship when he surrenders his will and sacrifices his life on a cross. Jesus breathes his last. The curtain in the temple in front of the place where God dwelled in the temple is literally torn in two from top to bottom. And so God would no longer dwell in the temple. He would no longer dwell behind the curtain. He would come to dwell through the Holy Spirit in the hearts of his people. And instead of heaven and earth meeting in the temple or in the tabernacle, heaven and earth would come to meet in the human heart in our lives. And so it is now that God secures his victory in the battle for human hearts. Jesus moves in to our hearts and claims victory over that which was already his. And heaven and earth now meet in us. This worship, this surrender, this sacrifice is happening now. Instead of at, the, at a specific place, at a specific time, it's happening in our very hearts. Everywhere we go, where we work, where we live, where we are with our families. Everywhere we take ourselves, which is everywhere, last I checked. We're experiencing God through worship. So we fast forward now to the vision that John has of the future in, in the book of Revelations. And there are two passages here that I want to highlight. Revelations chapter 13, verse 15. And then, we'll, and then we'll look at one more that's just right after that. So Revelations chapter 13, verse 15. So John sees a picture. It's, it's somewhat confusing, and I don't pretend to understand it. But I think it, there's a point here I want to make. John sees a vision of two beasts. And in chapter 13, verse 15, it says that this second beast was permitted to give life to the statue of the first beast so that it could speak. Then the statue commanded that anyone refusing to worship it must die. And you kind of read that and say, wait a minute. I thought Jesus solved this when he came. He made a way for us to give our lives completely to him. So why is the battle for human hearts still raging, even even in the picture that John has at the very end of this age? And the reality is, Jesus begins his kingdom when he comes, but this battle continues until he comes again. And that's the reality that we talk about all the time, about the overlap of the two ages that we live in today. But fortunately, John also sees the glorious finale when Jesus says in chapter 15, or when, when John says in chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, so Revelation 15, 3 and 4, and they were singing, the people of God were singing in this vast vision that he has of the end of all times. Singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, 
Great and marvelous are your actions, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous deeds have been revealed. And so it's only God in the full sweep from Genesis to Revelation. It's God that deserves our worship. It's God who Abraham trusts completely and to the point of being willing to sacrifice his son. He's the one to whom David wrote love songs and sang with abandon and lay, put it all out there. Nothing held back. God is the one uh, that broke the power of the lowercase gods in our lives through Jesus. He's the one that made it so that heaven and earth now meet in us, not in an external structure. He's the one before whom all people from all nations will one day bow. And he's the one who's worthy of our worship. So this brings us full circle back to the question in the title, which is what is worship? And we've seen in the suite from Genesis to Revelation now that worship is outward expression of love, surrender, and sacrifice to a loving and powerful God. It's very direct. We see it's by name. It's personal. It's an exchange. It's an experience where we encounter God, where heaven and earth meet now in us. It's exclusive. He's the only one. He's the real God. Everything else is not. And it's our only fitting response to his interaction and his goodness in our lives. So my encouragement to you would be to reflect in the days and weeks ahead on how is it that God wants you to worship him more fully, wherever you're at in your journey. And that's the beauty of one family as we're all in different places. And that's what makes us such a great family as we're diverse. We have we're at different places in our journey. So worship God, worshiping God looks different for each of us. So it's a, it's a very uh, personal question with outward expression. We wanted to paint a very broad picture of uh, what biblical worship means, but we only had a chance to just kind of fly over the tops of the trees. Uh, so what we're going to do this summer so we want to make sure you come back. This summer we're going to unpack more fully uh, some of the things that we didn't have time to cover about being set free from the worship of idols, present-day idols in our lives. Uh, we'll talk about worship in the vineyard. What is it that we do in vineyard? Why is it there's some uniqueness there? What is that about? And, and unpack that a little more fully. We'll also just give some practical tips on overcoming you know, self-consciousness and things that otherwise... Uh, inhibit us from fully experiencing God through worship. And then you, you won't, you won't want to miss next week because Melissa Logston is going to talk about outreach. And when we experience God through worship, the natural follow on to that is sharing with others. Because when we're profoundly changed, that's our heart's desires just to share the good news, to share what's happening to us and through us. And so you won't want to miss uh, Melissa's message next week on reaching out. So let's just go for it together today as we worship God through song and also as we worship him through the sacrifice, the giving uh, from our finances of that which God's given us. So Father, thank you so much for the vivid pictures of worship we see in the scriptures. You are so worthy of our hearts and so worthy of our lives.
So now we joyfully give ourselves completely to you as we give of the resources you've given us financially and as we sing from our hearts love songs to you to just say how much we love you. In your name, amen.